You are listening to the Health Disparities Podcast. Value-based care growth is now predicted to accelerate and is set to be the framework for double the number of patients in the next five years. But when you actually get down to the implementation of that, that's where people are really potentially going to be harmed. And one of the sad facts is they're going to be harmed without even realizing it. You know, when he was growing up on the farm, uh, there was no such thing as, as health insurance for them. And um, the fact that they were born in the South and they were very poor and they were African-American and they, you know, they had a really uh, a difficult life um, on the farm, you know, that was their pre-existing condition. Social determinants of health. The fact that the woman is uh, perhaps overweight, the fact that she's on her feet all day, the fact that she lives in a building without an elevator and maybe in a neighborhood that's not particularly safe means that she's not necessarily going to be able to do all the post-operative things that uh, you might otherwise do. And so as a consequence, the risk is that that it is not going to be what someone defines as a valued uh, outcome. Now, the fact that the woman has much improved mobility can now, you know, far reduce pain, that doesn't seem to get factored in it because the value-based payment system created a disincentive on the part of the orthopedic surgeon to take that case on. Really making sure that quality in healthcare includes equity, not just cost savings, um, is a big part of the Emmett Act. And it's, you know, it's something that I think that everyone can and should get behind. Elected officials, regardless of their party affiliation, really do uh, worry and care about their constituents having access to healthcare. Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Health Disparities Podcast, a program of Movement is Life. Movement is Life is a nonprofit organization which advocates for the provision of more equitable care of common comorbid conditions in underserved populations, in tandem with championing the essential role of lifelong physical activity or movement in improving health. I'm Matt Ryder, your host for this episode. I'm a federal health policy specialist and principal at Capital Associates. I also serve on the leadership committee for Movement is Life. Value-based care has emerged as an alternative and potential replacement for traditional fee-for-service reimbursement, centering quality and outcomes rather than quantity. That is the theory. In practice, value-based care has been shown to exacerbate some inequities in the healthcare system by making it harder for those patients with complex conditions or being impacted by social determinants of health to access care. Often, these patients represent racial and ethnic minorities, women, or are from rural areas. Put simply, if some categories of patient are more financially risky than others to treat within the value-based framework, providers may find ways to exclude them unless there are checks and balances in place to help manage that risk. For several years now, Movement is Life has been championing legislation that would introduce some of the necessary checks and balances and provide safeguards to protect patients receiving value-based care, particularly Medicare and Medicaid patients. These efforts have culminated with Representative Terry Sewell and Senator Cory Booker 
reintroducing the John Lewis Equality in Medicare and Medicaid Treatment Act, or EMMT Act for short. This bill would require all new payment models to take into account how the model impacts social determinants of health. I'm joined today on the podcast by two people who have been very close to assessing these issues and championing the EMMT Act as a legislative solution. Tom Dorney is vice president of the Root Cause Coalition, whose mission is to reverse and end the systemic root causes of health inequities for individuals and communities through cross-sector partnerships. In his prior role, Tom served as senior policy advisor to Congressman John Lewis, who first introduced the EMMT legislation prior to his passing in 2020 at the age of 80. Welcome, Tom. And thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Bill Finnerfrock was the president of Capital Associates until his recent retirement. Bill is a specialist in healthcare financing, health systems reform, health workforce, and rural health. In addition to numerous successes in the legislative arena, he has successfully worked on public policy and regulatory issues before the Department of Health and Human Services, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and the Health Resources and Services Administration, among others. He worked closely with Tom and Congressman Lewis to advance the MMT legislation. Thanks for joining us today, Bill. Thanks for having me. From the perspective of Movement is Life, who instigated advocacy on this issue, can you share with us some of Movement is Life's concerns about the potential negative effects of value-based care on particular populations? I, I think you kind of touched on it in your introductory remarks, which is that as we move into uh, what many are, are calling a value-based payment system, that the way that people are defining value will be done in a, in a manner that will uh, have the effect of, of either excluding or creating a disadvantageous environment for individuals uh, who come from uh, minority, um, low-income, rural women, uh, folks who have historically been disenfranchised from the healthcare delivery system, uh, unless we really take a deeper dive on these models and build build in um, some some cushion to make sure that that those disadvantageous outcomes don't occur. So, should a physician be only held accountable for those things over which he or she has some control, what they're what they're doing as a clinician, and can we uh, make sure that those factors that may affect the outcome don't adversely uh, affect their uh, their quality score, uh, their their financial incentives, that type of thing. Tom, can you share with us how and why Congressman John Lewis took on a leadership role in championing legislation that would offer solutions to the side effects of value-based care? Absolutely. Um, let me just say again, it's I really appreciate um, being with you guys to to talk talk about this issue. Um, John Lewis kind of came of age during the civil rights movement and was the leader of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and was a, a protester, sit-ins, freedom rides, spoke six at the March on Washington in 1963, and was uh, generally known for his life's work of you know justice and freedom and civil rights. And when I had the huge honor of like joining his team, joining his staff and um, uh, doing health care for him, he was on the Ways and Means Committee in the House of Representatives and had some jurisdiction over health. And at that time in the House and on Ways and Means, this was very much, you know, the topic we're talking about today was really what was going on. And um, the House was in the, the middle of 
uh, passing a legislation called MACRA to do away with an, an older uh, reimbursement law called the sustainable growth rate, which I will not uh, talk about at all because it's got talked about a lot in its time. But um, so, you know, this movement from volume to value really had a good portion of its roots there. And at that time, you know, Mr. Lewis, I will say, um, you know, had been on the oversight subcommittee of that, uh, that committee, but um, he put himself on the healthcare subcommittee during those days when this when this legislation was introduced because you know he recognized pretty quickly that this transition from volume to value and how do we make sure that we're incentivizing the right types of services and how do we really make sure that we're meeting patients and Medicare beneficiaries where they are, that we could exacerbate minority health disparities pretty easily if you change how hundreds of billions of dollars leave the Treasury. So as we were considering MACRA and as we were uh, really trying to uh, change the way that Medicare is reimbursed, that became sort of the issue for him was like, how do we make sure that Medicare and Medicaid are going to work for people who are not as healthy and not as wealthy? And I have to say, um, how grateful uh, I am and how grateful he was to Movement is Life and to Bill and to you, Matt, also as well, for your work in those early days to really come together and, and brainstorm and think about, like, what would addressing this issue really mean in legislative terms? And so, you know, Mr. Lewis had a lot of his healthcare priorities for his district. And this became, you know, this became one of them, a, a way for him to fully address uh, health disparities, you know, from the position that he was in as a senior member of the Democratic Party and the Ways and Means Committee. Uh, we're so grateful to Movement is Life and to also to Terry Sewell and to Congressman Booker for really taking that mantle up and running with it. <laughs> and, um, and you know, we think it's a really important part of the future of uh, these vital programs. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate that. And we really enjoyed the opportunity to work with you and with Congressman Lewis, who is such an inspiration to us all. And like you said, to look at these issues and identify what does a legislative solution look like. And it sounds to me like it's just even more encouraging that Congressman Lewis, he never stopped looking at issues through the same lens of equality and equity and trying to improve life for people. And in this context, it seems something wonky like Medicare payment policy, but ultimately something that's intended to have a similar effect as some of his other work. Let me share one more thing, um, if it's all right. And you can you can cut this out of the podcast if it's not if it doesn't. You can leave it on the editing room floor. But um, after after Mr. Lewis joined the the health subcommittee, um, we found him getting a lot more invitations to speak about health and to speak about the Affordable Care Act and to speak about health disparities and health equity. And so I was writing a lot of remarks for him, and he told me a story that I'll never forget. Um, he he called me up and he was telling me that he had to deliver uh, um, remarks for this event and it was about health equity and um, he told me a story about growing up and uh, in rural Alabama just outside of Troy and he told me a story about how um, you know when he was growing up on the farm uh, there was no such thing as as health insurance for them and um, the fact that they were born in the South and they were very poor. And they were African American, and they, you know, they had a really uh, a difficult life um, on the farm. You know, that was their pre-existing condition. Um, so they didn't have health insurance, but they did have death insurance. 
immigrants. And that was somebody who came through the town and sold, um, you know, the promise of a dignified burial. And um, and people would just, you know, go through their go through their house and rummage and find all their pennies and nickels um, to give to this man to to buy uh, funeral insurance, you know, so that they could have a so they could they could be remembered well. And um, he said to me on that call and he said, Tom, this is what I want you to write. He said. It never occurred to us to think about how we lived. We could only prepare to die. And so really making sure that quality in healthcare includes equity, not just cost savings, um, is a big part of the Emmett Act. And, um, uh, and it's, you know, it's something that I think that um, everyone can and should get behind. Thanks for sharing that, that powerful story. I think that segues into, you know, a question I have for Bill. According to a recent report by McKinsey, Value-based care as a proportion of the healthcare landscape has been growing steadily, and capital investment in value-based care quadrupled during the pandemic. Value-based care growth is now predicted to accelerate and is set to be the framework for double the number of patients in the next five years. How might more patients than ever be at risk? Great question. And I and I think it absolutely uh, does lead to the, to the potential and what I think is going to be the reality of more patients being at risk unless we do the kind of things that we call for in the EMMT Act. One of the problems you have here, and, and, and I think it's, you know, people say, oh, we've doubled the number of people in value-based care. Well, you know, what is value-based care, number one? And number two, who's defining value? And I think the second question is almost the more important one. How do we define value? Typically, those who develop the value-based payment models uh, define value in an economic context. You know, what is is it cost-effective care? And they do throw in uh, quality measures to say, well, we don't want it to just be about you know economics. We want to make sure that in in achieving value, we don't in any way diminish value. Great-sounding words, but when you actually get down to the implementation of that, that's where people are really potentially going to be harmed. And one of the sad facts is they're going to be harmed without even realizing it, because in many cases, they're going to be denied care by simply not being recommended for certain care. So, for example, um, you have uh, a 40-year-old woman who is uh, perhaps overweight, borderline uh, obese, uh, lives in an apartment on the third floor where there is no elevator, uh, has a job where she is on her feet all day. And as a consequence of all that, she has significant knee pain. And she needs uh, really a knee operation. She needs knee replacement. The doctor who she may get referred to is going to look at that. And this doctor is, let's say, now in a value-based system. And that value-based system is going to look and say, yeah, well, did the patient fully recover from the knee? Were they restored to full mobility? Did they have to go into long-term care or some kind of post-surgical treatment? Did they uh, have an infection uh, as a consequence of the surgery? Well, many of those evaluations are, are going to be affected by what we talked about earlier, which are these social determinants of health. The fact that the woman is uh, perhaps overweight, 
the fact that she's on her feet all day, the fact that she lives in a building without an elevator and maybe in a neighborhood that's not particularly safe means that she's not necessarily going to be able to do all the post-operative things that uh, you might otherwise do. And so as a consequence, the risk is that, that it is not going to be what someone defines as a valued uh, outcome. Now, the fact that the woman has much improved mobility, can now you know far reduce pain, that doesn't seem to get factored in. And, and so the doctor is going to look at that, the orthopedic surgeon is going to look at that and say, gee, you know, Mrs. X or Ms. Y, you're not a very good candidate for knee replacement surgery. And so the patient goes away going, oh, okay, I guess I just don't get knee surgery. Well, the reason she's not a good candidate is not because of anything that, you know, they could, they could easily replace her knee, but it's because the value-based payment system created a disincentive on the part of the orthopedic surgeon to take that case on. Let me follow up on that. How would the EMMT Act fix these issues? So in, in essence, what uh, the EMMT Act says that in developing models that are value-based care models, you have to develop it in a way that does not result in a reduction in access to care, which is not part of the underlying requirements, nor that, uh, that in any way uh, d- discriminates or makes it harder for individuals based on their uh, uh, race, ethnicity, gender, or geography to access uh, the system. And so they have to go in and de- when they're developing the model, they have to build in these safeguards to ensure. And it's not it's not really that difficult, and it's not um, unusual. Uh, as an example, when the government contracts with a health plan, you know, a managed care plan, a, a private commercial insurer under uh, various programs, uh, what they often do is they build in what are called risk adjusters so that that if the health plan gets uh, an adverse or high percentage of high-risk patients, the plan comes in and adjusts for that and says, okay, that's not your fault. We're going to pay you more. The same thing can be done now at a provider level. And that's kind of what we're hoping this would lead to, where you can build in uh, various criteria, factors, in essence, risk adjusters that say, okay, if you have a patient that is is overweight, if you have a patient that has chronic uh, conditions, if you have a patient that has other factors that are outside the control of the provider or the hospital, we're not going to hold that against the provider. We're going to, in essence, risk adjust this payment and this evaluation in order to normalize. So there is no incentive or disincentive on the part of the surgeon to skew their patient population to those who are upper income, healthy, you know, et cetera, versus patients. You you normalize that, you level that playing field. So it's a clinical decision, not one that's based on this arbitrary definition of value. Thomas, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? During the reintroduction phase of this bill last year, we had an opportunity to uh, talk with CMS and the Innovation Center, and they made a really interesting point, which was that, you know, you should be correct to think that equity is a part of quality, but you'd be wrong. And right now, this part of the statute really lifts up um, cost and quality 
uh, in as as uh, what the primary purposes of the of developing new payment models is, and the Emmett bill it does uh, place equity alongside quality and cost considerations where it should be. Could you tell us to what extent organizations in the coalition share these concerns for vulnerable patients with regard to value based care? What are some of the solutions you are seeing being put in place? Absolutely. You know, um, the Root Cause Coalition, which is about uh, 100 organizations, all all united around achieving health equity through cross-sector collaboration. So, you know, our organization really is, it's sort of a Rorschach test. If you look at our membership page, you can sort of, you can see community-based organizations, food banks, but also payers, hospitals, health systems. And so, Everyone is united on on really just this aim about you know making healthcare work for people who are not as healthy and not as wealthy. You know, for us, our sort of spiritual founding is around nutrition and hunger as a health issue and food as medicine. And recently, you saw uh, the White House uh, conference on hunger, nutrition, and health. And um, it was a bipartisan event, and the Root Cause Coalition is presently going around uh, the country holding events in each of the uh, USDA regions, just building off the momentum of that event. And people may not realize that the last White House conference uh, on nutrition was held in 1969 by President uh, Richard Nixon, and it created a lot of the you know, uh, food stamps, SNAP, TFAP. Uh, WIC, uh, all of those programs are, are come from that effort. And so there's a lot of conversation momentum around having nutrition be something that is really uh, considered in uh, Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement, specifically in Medicaid and in 1115 waivers. Um, I'm up here in Massachusetts right now, and there's a lot of work being done in Medicaid to make medically tailored meals a part of uh, a covered benefit in Medicaid. And so that's sort of where our head is uh, right now. But across the country, there's, you know, in each, in each area, in each community, um, folks are really having to reinvent the wheel to think about, you know, how their community is going to pay for addressing social determinants of health. And really, you know, where is that where does that money come from? And so the Emmett bill is just the, a really crucial part of getting that step forward. The Root Cause Coalition believes and we are circulating a letter of support for that bill right now. So, um, you know, Again, I'm I'm not uh, I'm I'm kind of biased about it, but I I love it. I love the bill, and I think it's going to be a, a really important part of the conversation moving forward. Thanks, Tom. And Bill, can you explain why you think the policy solutions in the EMMT Act can appeal to both Democrats and Republicans? Sure. I I, I think first and foremost, it's you know, and I I've been involved in politics and advocacy and congressional staff for over four years. Universally, whether it was Republicans or Democrats, everyone cared about access to care. So I, I think you start from that premise that that elected officials, regardless of their party affiliation, really do uh, worry and care about their constituents having access to health care. Now, some of them represent urban populations, some of them represent rural populations, some of them represent areas that are more well off than other areas. But um, you know, at, at the end of the day, there are things that restrict or limit access to care 
whether you're in a rural underserved area or an urban underserved area, as an example. And so what you find politically is that, that many rural areas are represented by uh, Republicans. Many of your inner city urban areas are represented by uh, Democrats. Now, those aren't universal, but you know, as a general proposition. The EMMT Act says, you know, we're looking at this based on race, ethnicity, gender, and geography. And I think the geography part really uh, creates the opportunity for this bipartisan uh, consensus. Because although individuals in rural areas, they have access to, to care problems, but the underlying reasons for that may be uh, different than someone who lives in an urban area. Um, in, in rural communities, it's very often a, a function of geography, literally the ability to have a hospital, a doctor, a PA, a nurse practitioner in close geographic proximity or reasonable, not even close, reasonable proximity to where you live. In urban underserved areas, you may very well have you know, providers who are in close geographic proximity to the patient, but for various reasons, it could be language, could be financial, uh, it could be transportation, they don't necessarily have access. And so um, by focusing on access to care and how this ensures access to care, I think creates that synergy that allows us uh, to attract individuals from both sides of the aisle. Tom, what is our call to action to listeners wishing to support its passage and honor the memory of John Lewis at the same time? Oh, well, that's an easy one. Get into some good trouble and keep your eyes on the prize and don't give up and don't give in. I'm just using all of his turns of phrase. Yeah, it, you know, th this is this is the sort of thing where um, it really comes down to spending the shoe leather. And I would just say to any of your listeners who are thinking about being more involved, getting more engaged, where do I start? What do I do? You know, knowing who your elected representatives are, staying in contact with them. There's a term for uh, the type of engagement where you contact your member of Congress or your local representative only once. And that term is tourism. Um, you have to stay engaged. You have to keep poking them. Get involved. and But the most important thing is to stay involved. You know, Tom, I, that, that use of the term tourism, I think, is a great uh, way, way to phrase it, because we, we would often talk about that to people that we work with. And this idea that, you know, you need to, to not be a pen pal. You don't want to be so writing so often, so frequently that it's like, oh, here's, you know, Bill again. But enough that they know that you care. Persistence is really uh, an important part of this. So, you know, yes, you write the letter, you reach out, you communicate, and don't allow your presumption of where you think that member is coming from is, oh, well, because they're this, they're automatically going to support the MMTX or because they're that, they're automatically going to oppose the EMMT Act. Absolutely throw that out. Throw away whatever assumptions, presumptions you have. You have to ask, number one. You know, mm -hmm. you have to, I, I remember Tip O'Neill, I was at a dinner one time, and uh, Tip O'Neill was the keynote speaker. And it was one of the first times he was running for office. I think he was running for the state legislature up in Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, he was he was going around and and he ended up he he didn't win and he went to one of his neighbors that had known him since he was a young boy, and uh, you know he was talking about it and you know the woman said uh, you know gee I'm sorry about your loss and he goes oh it's great he goes you know I I'm really pre appreciate the support I appreciate the fact that you voted for me and she said well well tip she said I I didn't vote for you 
And he was he was like, what do you mean you didn't vote for me? You've known me my whole life. You know, you, we've been in the street. You're, you know, our friends or families. Why didn't you vote for me? And she said, well, you never asked. And he presumed that because she knew him, he didn't need to ask her. That's a great story to end on. Thank you, Tom and Bill, for this important background information that illustrates why we need the John Lewis EMMT Act to receive bipartisan support and to be successful. Our listeners can find everything they need to support the legislation by following the link we have provided in the summary. Until next time, I'm Matt Ryder saying thank you for listening and for supporting Movement is Life. Be safe and be well.